Welcome to this holiday edition of the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, the president responds to the actions of a conservative Supreme Court. One thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. And he changes his tune on one potential solution. We have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be. We provide an exception for this. Women now have to worry about anti-abortion states like Texas seizing their phones. Location data, menstrual trackers, and other information can now be used by law enforcement to determine if a woman has visited an abortion clinic. Plus, another decision by the conservative justices guts the EPA will get reaction to each of these rulings and a visit to one of the region's most notorious homeless encampments. I struggle with this because I wear a couple different hats. You know, we we have the role as a sheriff's deputy, but I live in this community, and this, this is not okay. This is not right. All of those stories on the way this hour. But first, well, now that the nation's highest court has sided with Bremerton's praying coach, Coach Joe Kennedy, will he get his job back? Well, Kennedy's attorney says that's all the coach really wants. We get the latest from Corwin Hake. Attorney Hiram Stasser tells our sister station KVI, Kennedy neither sought nor expects that he'll be paid damages, back pay, or any other compensation. We've asked for him to be able to have his job back, and uh, our hope is that uh, this fall, Coach Kennedy will be able to to be a coach again and uh, contribute to the community that, you know, essentially collectively raised him. But attorney Richard Katsky, who argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of the Bremerton District, says Kennedy and his wife now live in Florida, having sold their home in Washington. And it's not at all clear that he actually really genuinely wants to be back there. What is clear to Katsky is the nation's highest court got this one wrong. It concluded that a public school employee's desire to prey on the job with students is more important than the religious freedom rights of the students and their families. Sasser says Kennedy never intended any of that. He just wanted to pray alone on the 50-yard line. Over the years, uh, people asked if they could join him, and he says it's a free country, you can do whatever you want, but that never was his actual calling. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And Corwin joins us now on the Northwest News Line to discuss this further, and I guess that first question is, Will Coach Kennedy get his job back? Because it's kind of a misnomer to say he was fired. He didn't get his contract renewed, and he didn't apply to have it renewed. Yeah, that's one of the the points in this case, Jeff, that even though the highest court in the land has ruled on it, uh, that's one of the facts that seems to still be in dispute. Was this coach fired? Did he have cause to sue the Bremerton District to begin with? And what was he really arguing for when it comes to his own religious freedom? Uh, One of the questions is, did Bremerton allow him the freedom to pray privately if he chose to? And did he, in fact, insist on, no, I need to do it on the 50-yard line, as has been my habit for the last several years? Well, we know now that the Supreme Court, with the facts or without, has decided that, yes, he does have that freedom to be out there on the 50-yard line, whether there are people observing him or not. That's what he seemed to want. But again, we have his lawyer saying what he really wants is his job back. Will he come back to Washington to claim it? Another unanswered question. 
Now, didn't the district offer him, you know, I, I, I'm not a lawyer, neither are you, so, so we're not going to try to make any, any legal uh, representations here or legal analyses here, but didn't the district say, okay, we'll give you this accommodation where you can, you can pray alone in a room or, or private? Because the, central to this case was this idea that as an agent of the state, as a public school teacher, he is creating an undue amount of influence on impressionable young minds. Yes, and the lawyers for Coach Kennedy said that's not really the case. As you heard in the recorded piece, they said that he was in the habit of praying alone, and he said he didn't mind if people joined in. It's a free country. Well, the question that the lawyers for the Bremerton District were raising was, were kids really free to make the choice on their own? There was the issue of whether other athletes coming on the field and joining coach to pray put pressure on those who maybe didn't want to pray to go out anyway to feel that they were part of the team uh, otherwise they might put their own playing time at risk or their own sense of, of self-worth and 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 peerdom at risk uh, by failing to join in that's where the question of religious freedom is it's not just the freedom of praying but it's all the, also the freedom not to pray if you don't want to. That's why the Bremerton District and many others don't necessarily want a role model going out and praying and uh, consciously or otherwise influence other, uh, influencing other kids to do the same. And you mentioned that some of the facts of this case are, are still in dispute, despite that the Supreme Court has already made a ruling here. And, and one of those facts that is in dispute is whether or not this was encouraged by Coach Kennedy uh, for players to participate because it was, you know, just kind of this small thing until the lawyers got involved and then it became a spectacle where all sorts of people joined him. Yeah, I think we've all seen the video of once this uh, started to make news of people coming out of the stands and jumping over cyclone fences to get on the field and crowd around Coach making it much more of a spectacle than Coach Kennedy himself seemed to want it to be. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the coach himself kind of got caught up in some of that excitement and uh, himself made it more than he originally intended to be. Remember, he always said that this was just a solitary thing that he wanted to do privately. But the fact remains, he was doing this private action in full view of everyone on the 50-yard line of the football field. How private is that really? And he, he had been a coach for quite some time at Bremerton, Andy. This, this wasn't really something that he had been doing most of his career. This was more recently. Well, he'd been coaching there for, I think it was something like seven years. I'm not sure if I have my numbers right. Uh, what, what he told the public was that, yes, it was my habit just to do a short prayer by myself at, at, at midfield. Um, I don't know how long he's been doing that, but it seems like the other players coming out to join him was a most more recent thing. And that's when the district got involved. Apparently there were complaints. Uh, but don't forget also that Coach Kennedy is the one who sued the Bremerton district. And that's what started uh, this uh, this court battle that finally ended up in the nation's highest court. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, he never actually got fired, although he says all he wants is his job back. He apparently didn't apply for that contract again, and so the district didn't renew it. You can hardly blame them. He had turned into a controversial figure by that point. So if he does seek his old job back and, and, and try to come back and be, in, he was an assistant coach at Bremerton, he wasn't the head coach. If he tries to come back, what has the district said? I mean, are they are their hands tied? Are they Do they have to guarantee him a job? I don't know if they're bound to uh, give him a job again. 
The bigger question to me is, does he really want to come back and do that? It's, as you point out, an assistant coach job. It's not a high-paying job. He only gets a stipend for it. But he also has strong attachments to the Bremerton community. Uh, His attorneys told us that uh, he didn't have much of a family life. He struggled a lot as a young person, and uh, his lawyers say the community of Bremerton really raised him and raised him up to help make him the person he is. So he's got strong ties to the community. Whether that's enough to leave the new home he apparently has made for himself in Florida and come back to Washington State where he's a figure of controversy, that remains to be seen. And Bremerton, uh, until uh, Coach Kennedy decides to do that, Bremerton doesn't have to do anything. All right, Corwin Hake, reporter for Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time and insight on this. Thanks, Jeff. Now we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, could the fall of Roe lead to the end of the filibuster? The president changes his tune to protect women's rights when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. One thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. President Joe Biden responding to the hard right turn the high court has taken. In response, Mr. Biden, a former senator and strong institutionalist, has changed his mind on the filibuster. We have to codify Roe v. Wade in the law, and the way to do that is to make sure the Congress votes to do that. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights, it should be we provide an exception this. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C., and this is a big change for the president. It is a big change for him. It doesn't necessarily mean that something's going to come of this here, but uh, with him behind it, you would think maybe all the Democrats would get behind it in the Senate. That is not the case. Joe Manchin uh, from West Virginia, always the thorn in the president's side when it comes to getting things done in the Senate. And Kirsten Cinema of, uh, of Arizona, both of these Democratic senators say they will not blow up the filibuster, that 60-vote requirement to pass pretty much anything in the Senate other than budgetary issues. Without those two Democrats and all Republicans voting no, uh, the president's comments are fairly meaningless. However, there are two women in the Senate, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, who are pro-choice, and they have indicated that they would vote to put what was in Roe versus Wade into federal law to kind of do an end run around all these states that are rushing to ban abortion. But he'd have to get those two votes to do it. And then, of course, uh, his own vice president, Kamala Harris, would provide that 51st vote in the Senate and pass, they say codify, but basically make abortion rights legal in every state again. Uh, Will that happen? Doesn't seem likely, but, uh, you know, stranger things have happened in Washington if you've been paying attention to the news this week. Have we seen any precedent for this? I mean, obviously for the courts, there's been the battle over the filibuster and eliminating that for nominees to not only the federal appellate courts and district courts, but to the Supreme Court as well. But for legislation, has there been any precedent to, to eliminate the filibuster? Well, I guess if you, if you call budgetary issues legislation, yes. I mean, they just did it recently to avoid the U.S. defaulting on the debt ceiling. Uh, Mitch McConnell worked out a deal where, as in with almost all votes in the Senate, you need two votes to get to the vote. And one of them is the vote to say, are we going to get past a filibuster? They always call them test votes. And that is if you get more than 60 votes and you can get on to the debate and see if you're actually going to pass this thing. There were a number of Republicans that voted to say yes on the test vote 
uh, to raise the debt ceiling so the U.S. didn't default, but they refused to actually vote to stop defaulting. And that was one of the end runs around it. Basically, they didn't really get rid of the filibuster, but the Republicans said, well, we won't filibuster this time because we know you have to do this, but we don't want our name on it. We don't want we don't want the budgetary blood on our hands, so to speak. So that was one way to do it. You mentioned the judicial appointees. Now, this happened back under Harry Reid when the Democrats were in control of the Senate, and they were so frustrated because the Republican minority uh, would not let them get to the 60 votes to get any judge approved under President Obama. And Harry Reid just said, this is unacceptable. We can't have two, 300 openings in the judiciary and just let these courts sit waiting for judges when the Republicans are just blocking everything we do. So Harry Reid got up there and with a simple 51 vote majority, which they had at the time, managed to get rid of the filibuster just for federal judges. That will never come back. Uh, there's no uh, party in power that's going to voluntarily give up that power they gave themselves. Republicans said, you're going to be really sorry you did this. And of course, the Democrats were because when Mitch McConnell and Republicans got back in charge, they did exactly the same thing for Supreme Court nominees. So now forevermore, any federal judge or any Supreme Court judge that is nominated by a, a president of the same party that's in control of the Senate will very likely get those people through. And that sort of leads me to the next question, because if the Democrats get rid of the filibuster, a carve out, as they call it, for abortion and to codify Roe, then the next time that the Republicans gain control of the Senate, which is likely going to be this fall, they could use a carve out to uh, enact a nationwide ban on abortion. It also requires them to be in control of both the House and the Senate and the presidency, because if Joe Biden's still in office, they would have to, first of all, get rid of the filibuster and undo what they just did. That's number one. Number two, they would have to hope that the House is also in Republican control, so they would vote the same way. And then Joe Biden would veto that. It would go back to the House and Senate where you need a two-thirds majority to override the veto. And that's really hard to do. So theoretically, what you say is possible, but they got to have all the the dominoes lined up exactly right in order for them to make that happen. It's unlikely that Democrats are going to forevermore prevent the Republicans from gaining control of the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Just as soon as that happens, then they can do what they want. I would imagine that's the case, and, and that's the danger in this. And that's one of the reasons that even President Biden up until this point has said he didn't want to get rid of the filibuster because the Senate is supposed to be the great cooling pot of debate in this country that it forces them to get a consensus, not just one party rule, which happens in the House almost all the time. Uh, but in the Senate, it's like, OK, cooler heads are going to prevail. We've got to get compromise so that both parties agree on this here. Once you get rid of that, the Senate just becomes the House and we have a very different government. The Senate also tends to have a bias towards small states, and that's by design because everyone's got two votes in the Senate. Every state's got two votes in the Senate. It's not based on population. So it, it tends to be a bit more conservative. It does. And that, and that's that's a real problem because most Americans think, well, the majority should rule that whoever gets the most votes, whoever uh, attracts the most people should win. But that's not necessarily the case when it comes to the Senate, because you've got a lot of red states uh, that have no big population centers, not a lot of Democrats and progressives there. And so those states are virtually all guaranteed to have two Republican senators. And there are 
many more of those states than there are states on the coast where you have more of a progressive population. So the Senate is probably likely for the foreseeable future, always going to skew more conservative than than Democrat. So bottom line, are we expecting President Biden and the Democrats to have this carve out for abortion rights in the next year or two? The only way it's going to happen is if two Republicans vote yes, because two Democrats have already said absolutely no. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Jeff. Now, the issue of abortion and abortion rights isn't just about the procedure. Now, there are concerns that anti-abortion states could start looking at a woman's cell phone to see if they've terminated a pregnancy. That part of the story from Taylor Van Syce. Privacy around reproductive health data takes on a new significance now that Roe v. Wade is overturned. As Tatum Hunter reports in the Washington Post, privacy concerns are prompting Planned Parenthood to remove some marketing trackers. And Tatum joins us on Northwest News Radio. Tatum, this came out after your earlier report this week titled, You Scheduled an Abortion, Planned Parenthood's Website Could Tell Facebook. What had those marketing trackers been doing and has Planned Parenthood promised anything in response? So the marketing trackers that we found running on these potentially sensitive pages, um, they send data to third parties, in this case included Facebook, Google, TikTok, um, and they help the organization, Planned Parenthood, understand um, the efficacy of their marketing campaigns. This is really, really common, um, but of course, in this context, also potentially dangerous. Um, So Planned Parenthood promised to suspend the use of marketing trackers on those provider search pages. And let's talk more about that risk. Uh, Why, for a group like Planned Parenthood or or anybody, is it a risk to scrape this data and share it with Google or Facebook? So for years, privacy advocates have been warning us that kind of mass corporate data collection feels non-threatening when the only, you know, consequence you notice is targeted ads. But as soon as, you know, government or law uh, does something that you don't agree with, right, passes a new law or something is illegal that maybe you feel should be legal, um, the repercussions immediately change, right? You're like, how could the government subpoena this data that's sitting on these tech companies' servers if they decided to prosecute this? So people's eyeballs have been spinning a little bit these last few weeks wondering you know, um, how hard state governments will push for this data, if they will, and what tech companies should do in response. And that also leads to the question over HIPAA protections, too. Does any of the data that Planned Parenthood had been collecting for their marketing, does any of that violate HIPAA protections? No. What Planned Parenthood was doing is totally HIPAA compliant. And it's important to note that they do have a separate scheduling tool that, in, that they claim is in more of a black box and, you know, HIPAA compliant. Um, but the sort of data that was getting shared isn't protected by HIPAA. And I think that's the biggest takeaway here. HIPAA is a narrow law that, you know, was not created in a time where so much of our healthcare happens in digital spaces. And there's also a pretty important couple of articles you've written for WashingtonPost.com as well regarding various apps that collect data, too, that that could put people's privacy around abortion care at risk, right? Absolutely. Period tracking apps have been, you know, on people's minds these past few weeks. But I think it's important to understand that period, you know, your period data is the drop in a bucket. If you search search Google for um, Plan B, Um, you know, an abortion pill, a provider near you, even the term, am I pregnant? Google collects and shares that data and it's associated with you. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, you can delete your period app and put in a data deletion request, and that might be a good idea. But it's important to understand that for this uh, to feel safe for consumers, there needs to be a systemic shift in the way that companies collect and store our data. Tatum Hunter covering technology for The Washington Post. And you can find all of Tatum's work online at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. But how will the Supreme Court's actions on abortion change the political fight? President Biden this week met with governors from multiple pro-choice states. More on that from Greg Herschel. This comes a week after the Supreme Court overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling. And that's giving way to an unsettled immediate future. ABC News political director Rick Klein is with us this morning. Rick, from a political point of view, how do you see this evolving? Well, throwing it to the states is uh, is, is, is quite a dicey proposition because it's going to mean different things in different places. And frankly, it's going to kind of metastasize and play out uh, over a, over a kind of extended period of time in different ways. I'm curious to see what happens in some of the big battleground states, because uh, any state that might have divided government, this becomes a bigger live issue if you've got a Democratic uh, governor versus a Republican legislature or vice versa. Uh, that's really where the action is going to be. And it's going to be intense action, and I think unsettled action for some time, because uh, this is 50 years of established law that was upended overnight. And going to take a long time to play out. Does it energize the side that lost? Typically, yes. That's usually how these things work, is that losing is better than winning in the sense of getting your voters out there. Uh, but again, I, I, I would caution that we don't have a, a much of, a, of an analog for this, much of a history to, to go off of here. Uh, this, is, this is unusual to have a 50-year precedent on an issue as emotionally charged as abortion rights and to have that thrown out. So I think you're probably right that that's the direction you'd expect to see a little more action, a little more intensity, but uh, I don't think that's a poor conclusion. And it wasn't just the Roe v. Wade ruling. The the Supreme Court's conservative majority sent quite a message uh, with a ruling about the EPA's powers and a ruling about gun rights, and there are potential rulings coming in the next term. Uh, Politically speaking, do you think that the Democrats have any chance to, say, increase the size of the court? No, I I truly don't. I mean, I think... think Joe Biden isn't really a fan of that. And I think, uh, ultimately speaking, it's, I think that the court is going to be the number that it's going to be. I think there was some talk about early in the 2020 primaries around the Democratic side that faded away to the reality, and it is a reality, that, that it's very difficult. And, that, you know, that, that also the shoe's going to be on the other foot someday. And that it starts with the Senate to fit the politics of the moment, it becomes very dangerous very quickly. So I just frankly just don't see it happening. That's ABC News political director Rick Klein talking with Greg Herschel. Now we have to take another quick break, but coming up, abortion and school prayer aren't the only controversial rulings from the Supreme Court this term. We'll take a look at how the justices have gutted the EPA and the retirement of one of the bench's longest-serving liberals when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. A sweeping evisceration of the EPA's powers. That's what Washington's governor is calling this week's U.S. Supreme Court decision on federal clean air regulations. The story from Corwin Hake. Jay Inslee, who has staked his legacy on generational climate reforms, is reacting bitterly to the high court's ruling, limiting the Federal Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate a power plant's greenhouse gas emissions. The nature of the decision is a sweeping evisceration of the ability of the federal government on a host of environmental laws. The ruling specifically addresses a West Virginia coal plant. Inslee says despite that aspect of the case, plans remain firm to shut down a coal-fired plant 
plant in our state, the Transalta coal plant in Centralia. I have not been alerted to any slowdown on the Transalta transition that appears to be moving forward. What the ruling does mean, Inslee says, is that Washington and other like-minded states must now carry the environmental standard. We need to doubly make that commitment today now that the federal government is on the sidelines to some degree to reducing carbon pollution. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Now this and other controversial decisions from the court came at the end of the term. But importantly, the end of the court's term also marked the end of a career for one of the justices. At age 83, Stephen Breyer announced he's officially retiring from the bench. Elisa Jaffe spoke with ABC's Andy Field about what's next now that Breyer is leaving. In one of his last cases, Andy, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer joined the dissent against the court's majority overturning Roe v. Wade last week. And Justice Breyer has a long list of dissenting and majority opinions as his legacy. Yeah, you know, he, look, he's been on the court since 1994. President Bill Clinton nominated him and he replaced retiring Justice Harry Blackman. He's generally associated with the liberal wing of the court, has voted consistently in cases that, that seem to skew more liberal. And of course, he was uh, the dissenting voice in a lot of these cases where we've seen in these six to three decisions where he was one of the three remaining so-called liberal justices on the court. The fear was is that he would be replaced with another conservative had uh, President Trump won re-election, but that wasn't the case. And Kentaji Brown Jackson was confirmed several months ago. She's been basically sitting on deck, uh, swinging, practicing, waiting for her turn to go see the next few cases, which of course usually come in the fall. But we may hear that the court is prone to taking some other cases coming up soon, which would be interesting. Some of them uh, include bump stocks challenging the federal law. We, we know from the Las Vegas shooting that uh, the shooter who killed so many people in that horrendous mass shooting used something called a bump stock on a semi-automatic rifle that made it able to fire faster than normally it would do it and of course created so much more death the uh, federal government i think under president trump then said we're going to regulate that and limit the ability to sell that well gun owners are saying no 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 we want those and so they sued and uh, that court that case could get to the supreme court if they decide on it others uh, other court cases pending they haven't come yet but election laws flight attendants do airlines have to follow state labor laws in terms of how you treat flight attendants the healthcare worker vaccine mandate in new york federal healthcare worker vaccine mandate these are all cases that will come up or could come up before the supreme court in the next session and that's may come under the jurisdiction of Ketanji Brown-Jackson, uh, a liberal replacing another liberal judge, Stephen Breyer. And her historic swearing-in set for tomorrow, the first time white men won't represent the majority on that Supreme Court. But the justices are expected to hand down some remaining opinions tomorrow. Is this before Justice Breyer leaves in the morning? I think that's the case. It doesn't really matter whether he's there or not. He's already decided the case. One of them is the EPA's authority to regulate emissions from power plants. Now, this is something no one even thought the court would take up, but they did. Uh, And so there's concern among environmentalists that this conservative court will just say, as they do often, that the government overreach uh, shouldn't be part of the EPA and they should not have the authority to regulate these carbon emissions. Uh, We'll see what they decide on that. And then, of course, this famous stay in Mexico rule that was put in place under former President Trump, where people seeking asylum, the Trump administration made a deal with the, the Mexican government to say, hey, just keep those people on your side of the border while they're seeking asylum. And then when their case comes up, then they can come in and, and have it argued. There are 
immigration folks who are saying this is very dangerous for those folks who are basically fleeing from oppression and fearing for their lives, which is why they came to the United States in the first place. And when you kick them out and say, hey, just wait in line, that kind of blows up the asylum rule in this country, which is an actual law that Congress passed many years ago. Now, people complaining about the law, they can change it if they want. But in the meantime, the law stands that if you're seeking asylum and you have a reasonable cause to do that, you're allowed to stay in this country until Donald Trump came into office and he changed that. The Supreme Court's going to decide whether that is legal or not. ABC's Andy Field. Thanks, Andy. That's Elisa Jaffe. We have to take another break, but still to come, a look at how bad things have gotten in one local homeless encampment when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Homelessness, always a significant problem here in eastern Washington. And as Seattle and other cities begin to crack down on illegal homeless encampments, many of those in the encampments are moving to rural parts of the region. And in some places, that's only made the situation worse. I toured a homeless encampment this past week in South King County to see just how bad things have gotten. In the woods just beyond the Kent city limits, a sprawling homeless encampment reaches from a county road up into the heavily forested hills along the banks of the Green River. People have been living on this hillside for decades, but it was uh, small amounts of people in the past, but just in the last three or four years, it's grown tremendously. This is county property, so technically the people here are trespassing. This was a, a what we called a pit site for the Department of Transportation, for what we call the Roads Department yeah. of the County. Um, it was a place where I think there was like concrete, asphalt, there were materials they would use for maintenance. And there's actually a, an old road grade that runs down that direction. It's now been, of course, overgrown by trees and shrubs and such. Deputy Steve Johnson, who has been working this area for years, gave us a tour of the site that covered several kilometers of rough, wooded terrain. He knows each and every one of the more than 100 residents that live here. I can tell you their stories. I know who's got cancer, who had a son that died of a drug overdose last week. One of the people he's been working with is 65-year-old Deborah, who suffers from severe medical issues. The nurses come every week and, and take care of my legs. And then I've gone to the ear twice. While we were chatting, she pulled out paperwork showing that her previous landlord doubled her rent. Yeah, if I wanted to sign the lease, it was going to be 1600 but I only make 900 And then the month to month was 18 That was double. That's a 100% increase. That forced her into this encampment where she's been living out of her minivan. Deborah has been referred to services, but there's simply no space. And I was offered a tiny home and... There's a waiting list, so I've been out here basically for 100 days. But she's thankful for the support programs offered by the county and various nonprofits, one of which brought out a portable showering facility for her and her neighbors on the day we were there. But as we continued to follow Deputy Johnson up into the hills, the situation got significantly worse. The trash has grown. Uh, exponentially. But it's not just the homeless. We were told of multiple reports of nearby housed residents coming to the area to dump their garbage, avoiding a costly trip to the waste transfer station. Debris that included everything from tents to hazardous materials and children's toys and clothing covered the little open ground that there was. We even came across a makeshift latrine that was built over a small creek with all that pollution and human waste flowing untreated down into the Green River. An additional hazard for those living here is the poisonous sumac that grows throughout the woods. But beyond the health concerns, this area is simply unsafe. The hillside, uh, this whole area was condemned because of landslides. Uh, this tree that came down nearly killed a couple of these folks. I think it, this was in the fall. 
but nearly came down and would have killed them had it landed on their their uh, their shelter there. But sadly, many of the residents in these hills simply refuse to move. I struggle with this because I wear a couple different hats. You know, we we have the role as a sheriff's deputy, but I live in this community, and this this is not okay. This is not right. So what can be done? What is the policy for dealing with these encampments outside of city limits? We reached out to the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, which is supposed to oversee encampment cleanup and removal, plus the referral of residents to services. In a statement, they say they're coordinating outreach efforts with several contracted providers, and cleanup of the site has already begun. Vehicles parked on the street are to be gone by July 9th, and restoration of the wooded areas will begin four days later. Now we have to take another quick break, but still to come, an American institution returns after a two-year hiatus due to the pandemic, when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this week, with all the troubling news this holiday weekend, we figured we'd leave you with a much more upbeat story. A July 4th tradition returned to its rightful place in Brooklyn, New York, and Ryan Harris tells us about this very special contest. When all the world's languages are poured into a single bowl, the word recognizable to all will be freedom. It wouldn't be the 4th of July without hot dogs. In fact, we Americans will eat about 150 million hot dogs as part of our celebration, but not nearly as fast as the competitors at the annual contest held by Major League Eating. Yes, that's a real league with a commissioner, referees, and strict rules co-founded by George Shea, who you heard there in his role as MC at Nathan's Famous Hot Dogs at Coney Island. And this year, the broadcast returns to the place where it's been held for 106 July 4ths. Broadcast again on ESPN. Corner of Surfing Stillwell at Coney Island, opened in 1916 by Nathan Handworker, who had immigrated to the United States with his family. If you've seen the Nathan's contest, you've heard names like Kobayashi, Matt Stoney, Eric the Red Denmark from Seattle, and on the women's side, Mickey Sudo and Sonia the Black Widow Thomas. But the one they all want to beat is known simply as Jaws. Joey tells me competitive eating was not his idea. My little brother signed me up to a contest when I was 21, and the organizer offered me a free hotel room. And after that, I went to the contest, tied for third, and I was like, oh my God, I, I can figure this out. Now, I think this is the best job in the world, yeah. Since then, the pride of Vallejo, California has set records, like 7.6 pounds of buffalo wings in 12 minutes, 141 hard-boiled eggs in 8 minutes, and the big one, which he broke again in 2021, 76 HDB, that's hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes at the annual July 4th Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest, a contest Joey says he'll prepare for over the preceding two months. Even before that, I'm at my healthiest. Uh, I've been running for months and, and trying to make sure I'm at my lightest. And when I start practicing, I slowly build a tolerance for hot dogs, eating, ingesting, digesting more and more hot dogs. And every time I get them down, I know I can do a little bit more the next time. That prep includes two practices a week, mostly because that's all he can stomach. After practice, I recover and I fast and I, I need to make sure I'm absolutely empty for my next practice and then you need to make sure you're empty and that makes it easier to digest a silly amount of food. It took a lot of figuring on my body and a lot of the way the body digests. There's no books written about competitive eating. It's just a lot of trial and error. It's too much for some to watch. I find I can't look away. But if you watch, you'll notice some technique. Joey will eat the dogs two at a time, then the buns soaked in water and you'll notice him bouncing. Just trying to get the food to settle deeper inside of me, faster. And I uh, get it to settle the bottom of my stomach. 
Uh, yeah, and get the burps out. And hope there's not what MLE calls a reversal of fortune, whether you're a contestant or in the first few rows. To do all that, Joey does fast ahead of time. Usually about two days, no solid food. Joey's first mustard belt at Coney Island came in 2007. The streak broken at eight by Matt Stoney in 2015, but he started a new streak, which now stands at six. After moving it to an undisclosed location in 2020 and a minor league ballpark in 2021, the display of gastrointestinal prowess returns to its rightful place at the corner of Surf and Stillwell, where a crowd of about 25,000 people will witness what Joey calls his Super Bowl, because he says it normally does draw a huge and enthusiastic crowd. It's changed over the years. It's become bigger and bigger and bigger. It's uh, a ton of people in New York City on 4th of July. It feels like the center of the world, and it's happy people. I don't know, like a rock concert, except there are people eating. I don't know. It's just weird, and everybody's just there to have a good time. This year, Joey goes for his 15th mustard belt and another shot at breaking his own record. But to do it, he'll have to eat 77 hot dogs and buns or roughly 30 pounds of food. And he'll have just 10 minutes to do it. And he will fight at any cost until his spine collapses under the burden. Until his bones are cracked and splintered and scraped like chalk on pavement. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Boy, nothing could be more American than overeating. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podula. Thank you for listening, and have a happy and safe Independence Day weekend.